Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I was speaking with Zion White. Zion's a science communicator and an author, and I was hoping to get her on to speak today about nuclear energy, and if we get a little bit of time, maybe about some astronomy. Hi Zion, thank you for coming on. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so a mutual friend or a mutual acquaintance uh, let me know about you, because uh, we were talking about nuclear energy, and she'd mentioned that she'd spoken to you, and that was Sadia Hamid, about nuclear energy. So I was hoping to have you come on and Talk about nuclear energy as a way to combat climate change. And I mean, in my opinion, if you have a climate plan without nuclear energy, you're not really, you don't really have a climate plan. Then. So if you want to maybe start with that and then we can go from there. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's quite well covered. If you look at things like the IPCC report, nuclear is in there. Um, it's, you know, there's a lot of good data out there on nuclear, but then when you look at, um, governments say like the UK government's target so they're supposed to be reaching net zero by 2050 um, they've really got any nuclear in there they're looking at maybe building one you know maybe they'll build size size well or maybe they'll build Wilfer and that's it and that's not nearly enough um, in terms of what we need to meet our needs and, and even that's even with their um, investing more in renewables which they are it's just numbers are add up if you just look at you look at it on paper, it just still nowhere near meeting energy needs when actually our energy demands are increasing all the time. Population's increasing and we're using more tech, you know, so, um, so there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a mismatch there between what sort of, you know, needs to happen and what's actually happening. I think part of it, part of it is that on the way that information gets lost or buried because so many people are against nuclear and I think it's become a very political issue when it really shouldn't be and it should just be about data. I mean, okay, so I was looking on um, our world and data website, and someone had posted this the other day. I mean, I like that website because it's just basically just data, right? They don't they don't do a lot of yes. um, editorializing. Now, one of the things they said this was about nuclear energy. It's the safest, cleanest energy sources, and so deaths per thousand. You have point zero seven for nuclear, point zero four, and point zero two for solar. But then when you look at the tons of greenhouse gases, you have three for nuclear, four and five for solar. So, you know, just looking at that, is it the fear of the word nuclear? Because as soon as you hear nuclear, you think, you know, weapons or mass destruction, or you think here, uh, Fukushima or, you know, Chernobyl, like, what is it? Most people are not driven by facts. That's just, that's just a fact, right? Most people are not, driven they're not evidence-led that's fine that's the world that we live in most people are led by emotions and actually you know this is a this is an evolutionary thing right you kind of feelings emotions all really important things this is how we develop language we developed really some strong social structures we learned to cooperate because we were because we were led by you know feelings essentially um and the problem is now um if you look at things like chernobyl and fukushima big scary events that were you know not very well reported at the time look at some of the reporting um you know people thought the world was going to end when actually as you've seen from the data were a few deaths i'm not saying that that's good deaths happen from all methods of energy production and that data shows you it's significantly lower from nuclear right than, than fossil fuels and yet People don't have that those feelings about fossil fuels, which to me is kind of bizarre because 
if you talk about climate change and the fact that we are in a climate emergency, things are going to get steadily worse, we need to bring down emissions, you're only talking about fossil fuels, right? It's just about, it's not, you're not being political, it's not about, you know, pushing anyone's agenda, like bringing down emissions means we have to get off of fossil fuels, so that's coal, gas and oil, and so in Britain we still use a lot, right, we're something like 60% fossil fuels, we use a lot of gas. So we have to, then we have to talk about you know risk perception we're not very good at risk perception either so if you've got feelings that nuclear is bad and you don't have good risk perception where you realize that actually you know even the worst nuclear disaster is feels completely in comparison to what will happen to our planet if we don't address climate change really you should fall down on the side of nuclear you should fall down on you know saying oh thank goodness we have a really positive way out of this because otherwise i'd be worried frankly you know <laughs> how we how we how are we going to do it um, and I was for a long time because I was anti-nuclear and I didn't really see solutions. And, and honestly, I was I was worried all the time because I could also see that the only kind of report I'd seen on renewables, which said we could have 100% renewables. It was the CAT report. Um, if anyone wants to look it up, um, Centre of Alternative um, Technology created that report. It still requires a 60% reduction of energy use. And, you know, I was quite young, um, surrounded by anti-nuclear people in the environmental movement. But even then I was kind of going, hang on a minute, how's that going to happen? How are we going to reduce our energy? Can you reduce your energy use by 60%? I mean, that's a lot, right? It's not, a lot. it's not like I'm going around leaving all the lights on on purpose and I can do that less. It's kind of, well, how are we going to keep our hospitals running and do that? You know, it's just not pragmatic, basically. That's the bottom line. Um, it, that report appealed to a lot of environmentalists and a lot of greens and it has you know helped to create this kind of argument that we don't oh, we don't need nuclear whereas actually it's just that people are afraid of nuclear and they're also afraid to change their minds um which is why i've done i've done so very publicly um after spending a long time being very active in the environmental movement because i think it's now or never it needs to happen now and we need to these obstacles against nuclear out of the way and just you know I, I still think it's very difficult for people to be driven you know you've looked at our world in data and you've seen it and you understand it but still for a lot of people that look at it and they'll say oh you know the data skewed thing like that you know I've had that I've had that said, said to me yeah I mean I just want to give like a little bit of defense to people as well there's a lot of stuff out there right now I mean you know everything is an existential threat right now it's the way it's being pushed I mean environmental stuff is a huge problem but everyone's inundated with everything else, so they might not have the time to go look at you know, our world and data or go in depth. My whole thing is if it's something that's important to you, at least take a look. But there's a lot of people who say, oh, environment's important to me, but they have no clue about what's going on because they haven't taken the time to look. I think, and I think it's even more than that. I think that even if they look and they get it, you know, what can they do? It's not a lot you can do, right? You can turn your lights off. You can... You can um, switch your, you know, you can switch your TV off at the, at the socket. You can't, you can't make the government build more nuclear. So even if you have an opinion, I think that's kind of the crux of it is a lot of people just feel helpless and they can feel better if they're recycling more, which they should be doing, you know, all these are good things. They, it's good to do these things. I'm just saying that on paper, even if we all do that a lot more, like significant amount more, it's not going to be that 60% that we need to completely get nuclear out of the scenario. It's just not. And that's kind of, it's, it's almost a too, too technical a point to bring to a lot of people. But that is the reality. It needs to be, if anything, just understood by governments because they're the ones that make the policy decision. 
you know, cause you always hear, okay, we're gonna have the green economy. We're gonna make new jobs, which is great. You want to create new technologies. There's always going to be your know, runoffs from that and spinoffs from that. You can get something else, but like I was reading about the, the modular nuclear reactors. So these ones are newer, they're smaller. And then you hear something about India saying, we're going to go, we're going to provide electricity to the whole country by 2050, even the remotest village in, you know, in a forest, which fine, you don't want these people burning wood or, you know, sheep dung or whatever, but if they're going to be using coal powered plants, why not create these modular nuclear reactors, sell the technology to India, you know, your country gets wealthy, they get a source of power that's cleaner. And I mean, even if you use nuclear as a stopgap until you can fix some of the issues with like the, the storage of solar energy, like we don't have proper batteries or anything to store. So you don't have like that kind of stuff. Uh, the materials that you use to make solar, like has anything like that been kind of proposed to like do it as a stopgap measure or is it just all or nothing right now? So there's quite a lot in there. So um, there's all kinds of different advanced reactors that may come into play maybe really soon maybe 10 years away no one's quite sure i think the last thing i read about smrs which is Rolls royce's project was maybe 10 10 years away it's going to revolutionize everything like there's no doubt in my mind about that but right now we need to build things right now and none of the things are things we can build right now um, our government has been investing in them in smrs so you know i think it's good i think we should always um, fund the advanced tech Right now, we, the other point about India, I think, um, comes down to carbon budgets. Right now, we're blowing our carbon budget. So what we need to do is get down to net zero to allow other countries to have some development because when they have that development, the emissions will go up. And sadly, it, is, it does tend to be a case if they go from wood, to coal, to gas, to nuclear, you know, it's just very hard to leapfrog people away from, from you know, the, the things that they need start out with so that's what we did right we we have all this infrastructure and high quality of life because we burned loads of coal and we use loads of fossil fuels it's true they're reliable they're cheap it was you know it's quick and easy to do and then we realized hey this has had really bad repercussions and i think it's difficult for us to then say developing countries like oh no you can't do that we did that but you can't actually we just need to get our emissions down allow a little bit of leeway for other countries that do need build infrastructure and they do need to develop this high quality of life that we have and actually they need it more than ever because a lot of these countries like India are the ones that are going to be most impacted by climate change you know they're already being impacted by the droughts water shortages that's just going to get worse and that's not you know, that's that's quite soon you know I saw a UN report saying that by 2030 a lot of you know um, developing countries won't have access to water you know it's something like 40 percent I think they said of India won't have access to water so you know they what what's a good way to get water in a country like India? What, how about desalination? You know, there's lots of different options. Desalination also requires lots of energy. So whatever you fall back on, it always comes. This is kind of why I, I've started advocating for it the most, because I've realized, first of all, global emissions, it's about 73% is from energy. So it is the biggest slice of the pie. Secondly, so many of the solutions come from just tackling the energy at the core. And then you know, you can still have, I completely advocate for people having a high quality of life. We need access to hospitals. We need medication. We need all those good things. It's not just, you know, oh, we don't want consumerism. No, we need these things for a good high quality of life. We just need to have more balance. We need to bring down the emissions and we need to reforest areas. You know, it's not, I don't think it's even that complicated. So far, there are very few 
know, they, well, I say very few, I can't think of a single kind of, you know, politician that's arguing all those things. Like, I'll say it, but when you look at the documents that come out, like the, you know, um, the government's 10-point plan, it's not really in there. You kind of look at it and you think, okay, but that's not really going to bring us to 2050 uh, net zero. And it's not looking at the rewilding aspects that we desperately need for carbon sequestration. And things like, you know, protecting peat bogs, creating more natural habitats, you know, protecting all the species that we are basically um, about to, you know, we're going to lose in the next couple of decades. It's what the data says is that we're just going to lose so many of our bird species and other mammals, you know. Um, I want to see a plan that just shows that we're taking that seriously. That's all I want to see because I want my daughters to grow up in a world, you know, <laughs> in the world. I want them to uh, have a, but I don't want them to to suffer through uh, water shortages or weather extremes or you know there's no birds who wants that for their children no one wants that I don't want that for them at all I don't want them to wake up and there's a storm outside and they think you know am I going to make it through the day because you know this is happening because of climate change I want them to think oh it's just a storm which is what I thought when I was a kid just a storm just going to pass you know I'm a bit scared because I'm a kid and there's thunder and lightning and then I carry on with my day. You know, it was a very short period of time where I felt that before I learned about global warming at school. But even then I was optimistic because I thought, oh, we've got loads of time. We're going to sort this out. And here I am years later. And let's be honest, we haven't sorted it out. No, but like you mentioned the governments. So when you bring up France, everyone's like, oh, well, look at Germany. But it's like, yeah, let's look at Germany. They, they have periods where they have to buy energy from France because they went green and France is all nuclear. I mean, you do have some data on this. Like, even Sweden, I think, is creates more energy by nuclear than oh, they do. Oh, there's by... lots of data. France has an incredible energy mix. They're, like, in their 70, 76%, I think, clean energy. And, you know, they have a lot... They have a very strong um, energy security policy as well. So that, you know, they have their own nuclear plants that they run themselves. You know, we don't really have anything like that in Britain. We have a lot of old nuclear tech... We have 14, 14 of our 15 reactors are being shut down by 2030 just because they're old and they need to go. I've been advocating to build Sizewell after Hinkley. That's just to replace what we're losing. It's not even, you know, it's not more, not more energy. It's just to replace what we're losing so that we don't end up using more coal. And that is what happens in Britain. We still use coal. It's really sad fact. You know, I just think we're in the 21st century. Why on earth are we still using coal? We're telling other nations we don't want them to use coal, but we use coal. You can check it, electricitymap.org, you can check it every day, what the energy mix is. Every time the wind and solar drops below a certain amount, we bring in coal. It's everywhere. the same thing in Canada. Sorry, yeah, it's the same thing in Canada. I mean, we're lucky we have a lot of hydroelectric, but some of our prairie provinces, like Saskatchewan and Manitoba, they use a lot of natural gas. I think up until two years ago, we had five nuclear plants. Well, one of them in Quebec just got shut down, and we had when I think when all five were running, that was somewhere between 10 and 15% of our energy production. Especially, like I said, for our prairie provinces, when they're using natural gas, if you're going to look at nuclear, again, it's you have to build a plant. You have to, you know, some of our stuff is older infrastructure as well. They are older plants. So they're not, I believe some of the newer ones, there's less waste or the waste is, it gets easier to store. Again, I'm not 100% clear on some of that thing. Our government is not talking about nuclear at all. Like our government is, you know, the green new, well, it's, that's, that's the United States, but you know, we're on the Paris Agreement. We have to do net zero by 2030. Uh, I think they're talking about getting rid of sale of gas-powered cars by 2035 or something like that. Mm -hmm. But it's still just, it's not going to be enough, right? It's just not going to be enough. Not, but if people sit down and they look at the numbers, it's very clear that those small changes are not enough. It all depends on where you get your 
electricity from and it has to not be from fossil fuels that's it it's that simple it has to not that's all it is it's not it's not even about major lifestyle changes you know you can advocate for that and i've advocated for that before i wrote an entire book on lowering um carbon footprints i have a very low carbon footprint myself never learned to drive even if we all did that it's still not enough it's not enough to keep our hospitals running keep our homes warm in the winter no, we, we need more energy. It just needs to be clean energy. If you can explain a little bit. Solar panels, you know, the material needs to, needed to make them. The batteries, the cost of all that. You have an electric car, great, you have an electric car, but what's that battery made from? Health? Do you want to talk a bit about that or if you know about that? I mean, there's this, I think there's this misconception that if it's a renewable technology, and I think it, this is, it's in the name renewable, right? <laughs> um, it's like, it's clean. Someone, people often say to, say this to me someone said it to me recently um oh you know it's just it's just the wind it's just it's natural xeon and completely missing out the fact that this is like technology that requires mining and it requires yes lithium for batteries and it requires a workforce and it requires um, importing goods and a lot of those solar panels are made for example in china you know and that actually they last 30 40 years and then they need replacing and there's no way to recycle them and they end up in landfill sites and they, you know, quite toxic elements in them that just end up in these landfill sites. We don't actually know how to deal with the waste. And I don't say that to be against all of those technologies. I think, if anything, we need to improve them. We need to improve battery storage. You know, some areas can benefit really well from solar, but I think the idea of just replacing everything with it because it's green is just kind of, well, you know, is it, is it green? Is it green to me? A single nuclear plant, uh, you know, is a very dense, because it's so energy dense, nuclear power is so energy dense, right? You can, the plants are so small, they're just so compact. I've been to visit, you know, down, down um, in Ipswich, I've been to visit the um, Sizewell B plant, and it's and you can see Sizewell A there, which has been decommissioned. They're so small, they're so compact, and they're surrounded, it's right on the beach, it's surrounded by wildlife. You can see that it's, it's just, it's miles better than a huge, Solar farm down here where is um there's one proposed down in the south near Kent a solar farm it's, I can't remember how many acres it is but it's just like several football fields worth of land it's huge there's a lot of um there's a lot of um like protesting against it so who knows if it will actually go ahead but if you go and look at it and you look at the sheer amount of land you know I just think how can you call this green how can you call this green when a single plant can produce twice the amount of energy and actually, they last a lot longer as well, right? So it can last, you know, 50, 60, 80, even 80 years. Um, they, don't need, they don't need replacing. You decommission it, it's done. Yeah, I think there's a real problem with, with this misconception of, I think partly it's in the name. And it just, it's again, it's about feelings and it makes people feel like, oh, this is a positive thing, renewable sun and air and, you know, wind and water. And, and actually, you go and look at it, look at it and you think, no and I had to change my mind on this because I used to massively be advocating for renewables and then I I just looked I just looked I just went and looked things up I, I went and looked for myself and went wow I've kind of sold a lie and I don't know how that happened a lot of people believe that lie um and especially again somewhere like Britain you know we don't have a lot of land we do need to rewild a lot of it we can't give over a lot of space solar farms and wind farms we just can't and I know that that's why the government actually just said well we'll just build a load offshore and that seems to set people's minds at ease but it's like well offshore that's still a wild habitat you know birds migrate on those paths 
it's not just oh well it's out of sight out of mind that's still a wild space and we're taking up acres and acres of it to produce energy when we can just have a very small amount on land doing the same job you know what's what's the problem really i don't you know the problem's all just um you know fears that are based on a couple of things that went wrong which as we both know was you know even the toll of those is so insignificant compared to possibly which we're using already we're already using them but it's kind of that thing where it's like you just you're used to it so you don't recognize it as actually if you want to talk about what's the worst option it's fossil fuels and that's what we're using every day if we could get off fossil fuels tomorrow i think it would be great even if you could get away from plastic because that's a petroleum product but again like what you're saying like yes we have to be realistic because i mean like canada we use a lot of hydroelectric but even that once it's set up it's a very you know clean energy i can guess but like in quebec the hydroelectric uh, projects remember when they were being built and we were learning about them in school the amount of land that they flooded when they were they're creating those dams Mm -hmm. okay so there there's an impact there as well on the environment well everything has an impact on the environment doesn't it it's just about energy density and whether or not it's at this point whether or not it's bringing down emissions and hydros actually can be really good for that i mean norway's got a really clean mix because they've got a lot of hydro it's not an option for us here in britain you know and and as i say like the land use is an issue here we need we need compact and energy sources instead of importing i mean what are we doing we're importing gas a lot of the time from norway actually um so it just doesn't it just doesn't make sense there's so many things that um need just need to be completely changed it needs to be a complete overhaul and i kind of hoped when people started committing to the net zero target that that's what would happen but actually it doesn't seem to have happened yet and i don't know what's happening there where there just seems to be a lack of leadership someone just needs to come forward and say we have this revolutionary idea of here's here's what we're going to do you know we are in this amazing space age civilization we have the technology that can take us into space you know people live in space on the international space station we can go to the moon we can visit planets we absolutely don't need to use coal anymore why on earth are we using coal why why are children dying from you know high levels of air pollution we don't need to pollute our air we don't need to do it we it's ancient technology. We really don't need it. Or even like something like natural gas. Like when it first came out, I remember in, seeing a lot of it in the eighties. Oh, natural gas is clean. It's like, you put the word natural in front of it. Mm-hmm. And for some reason it's got this magical effect on people. It's like, no, it's still a fossil fuel. It's you're, you're still burning something. Uh, if I could just pivot for a second, cause I, I really like talking about this, but it was your video that you did on the, like the TEDx video you did about astronomy. Cause I think that's, you started talking about the light pollution and you know, I think that's what you said you got into the environmental stuff because I lived up north for a while and I have a little telescope it's you know nothing major it's uh, about 150 millimeters and living up north there's absolutely no light pollution especially in the winter I mean we had 20 hour nights so it's completely dark you know mind you it's minus 40 celsius outside but wow <laughs> you dress warm you, you dress warmly you light a fire and I could just spend you know like a couple hours out at night just staring at the stars and also up there was uh, used to see the auroras three or four nights a week, especially in the winter. So I was thought maybe if we could talk a bit about you know light pollution, you know, stargazing, astronomy, and like again the need to need to get away from some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I think that um, there's this thing as well that um, astronauts call the overview effect. Have you heard of that? It's this, um, this idea that when you've been into space, you get a completely different view of humanity, like a completely different 
you know concept of, of what it is to be alive on the planet to inhabit the planet earth and like obviously i haven't been to space but i've done a lot of stargazing i'm really into it um difficult difficult in britain it's always cloudy apparently <laughs> it's just honestly just so off so often so often i'm i'm pointed. but what i would say is i think you can a kind of i don't know that i'd call it that but there's something like that and again like we're missing this language because we don't have the experiences and i, I bet this language used to exist in fact and we've, we've lost it but there's some kind of word for that feeling you get when you truly see a clear sky like a real clear sky at night and you see the milky way and you see the colors of the night sky and you see all the planets, you know, and that's not reality is that most people, they open their front door at night. They don't see that. I don't see that here where I live. And I'm actually not in a highly polluted area, like polluted area. I don't live in London. Um, you know, when I've stayed in London, I've just I've stayed in London for long periods. I've started to kind of get so disconnected. That I, I remember once looking up at night when I was walking back to where I was staying and just almost didn't believe that there was anything up there. And like having to say to myself, no, 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 it's not because I could see the sky. It wasn't cloudy, but you just light pollution is so bad. Then I came back to where I live in Devon and was kind of like, okay, yep, there's Orion. I can always see Orion. It's not amazing level of, um, you know, visibility. What I think is that from the times that I've done it where I've really got a clear sky and then obviously I've got my telescope so that I've actually seen Saturn and I've seen Mars and I've, I've seen Ring Nebula. It's just absolutely mind blowing. Um, that's where it's kind of given me, you know, helped give me this other perspective where it does make you kind of zoom out. You just sort of, you just sort of see where you're at in this, this little ball, this pale blue dot just floating through space. That's it. It's just us on our own. And I think that is a little bit similar to the over in that it makes you think a little bit differently about humanity and your place in the world and kind of how insignificant you are. I mean, I said all of this in the TED. Um, I think it's, I think it's something that we had and we lost if you think about it we used to live much like we used to live outdoors much more we were out we, we spent a lot of time outdoors and we wasn't like pollution so you always you always saw the stars at night when it wasn't cloudy and you know a lot of cultures like our constellation names they come from cultures where told stories by the night skies you know they told stories by the constellations and that was really important and, and as the constellations moved you know, they tell different stories what do we see tonight here's what's happening tonight with um Here's the story of uh, Scorpius, the scorpion chasing Orion through the sky because he was punished, chased by this, uh, this scorpion through across the year um, because he threatened to take down, kill Gaia. That's like <laughs> condensing a long myth into, into five seconds. There's all those stories that we've lost. And, and I actually, I don't tend to, I'm not someone who really, um, you know, uh, just gets really obsessed with like past mythologies because i actually think you know in a way we lose them because they're not relevant anymore i do question where the stories of today are like what are the stories that we should be looking up and telling today that connects us to something wider and bigger and philosophical and spiritual and i don't mean religious religious i just mean something bigger than ourselves something that makes us question and, think. and that's what those stories used to be and that's what being able to see planets and things used to be not not just not just even greek mythology which is what we tend to get a lot of our names from you know just like our days of the week are from roman the romans right they based on what their understanding of planets were they named the days after them if you go to somewhere else another culture i found it really interesting things like the emu in the sky and aboriginal cultures in australia where they were they, they, they look at the dark matter in the night sky and they tell the stories by that and it's a story of an emu that you, you see if you look it up you can really see it in this in the night sky and, and it relates to the way that they harvest 
and the way that they live on the land. And it's so interesting when you think to really embedded in all cultures, basically. But what do we have now? Of course, we don't have it now because we don't see the night sky. What would we imagine if we did? And I really think that's something that's missing. I think we're missing. We talk about nature connection all the time, but we're talking about just land and you know trees and greenery. But what about what about this space connection? I think truly, I think it's missing. We don't even have a language to communicate it. And once you experience it a lot, you start to realise that you know it kind of feels natural, and you think maybe this is something that a lot of people are missing, and that's really sad. A lot of cities will talk about green spaces, and it's I mean obviously it's a lot harder to do in a city to make like a dark space because it's all lit up. Because, you know, like I said, I was living up in northern Canada, then I come back to Montreal, and up in northern Canada, a little small town, I mean, you'd see the stars every night, it was, it was awesome. Come to Montreal, and it's, you see Venus, and you think it's a star. You know, yeah. it's, there's, it's just too much light pollution. If they did something like that, like, okay, you know what, this suburb of Montreal, this little section, we're going to keep it dark. You could turn a green space into a dark space, I guess. Like, there's a, you know, there's a couple of nature, nature conservatories just outside of Montreal. If you said, okay, around this area, we'll shut the lights off at night so that people can come here and do stargazing. I mean, you've killed two birds there, right? You, well, maybe I shouldn't use that term since we're talking about the environment. <laughs> but, you know, you've got a green space, and then at night, you've got a place where people can come and stargaze. Like, I agree with you. I think we should stress that because it does make you feel small, but it also does give you a, a sense of connectedness. I mean, I think that was part of why the stories were there because, okay, well, when this comes out, then we plant. I mean, it's it's giving significance to your life from looking at something so far away. But I don't think there's anything wrong with feeling small. I think actually this is something we've forgotten. Because if if you realise how small you are, you realise how precious and short your life is. This is something that we never want to talk about, right? We never want to think about. We all live forever. We're all going to be arrogant in a little space, <laughs> a little amount of time on Earth. But actually look at what that's done to our planet, right? We're not thinking about these three generations ahead. We're just not. We don't think about, and, and that's, that's actually another thing that we've kind of lost. And I think, I think actually, um, I think there's some realisation of this. So here in Britain, we're starting to designate, designate more spaces as um, dark sky areas. So there's a couple down here where I live in Devon, and actually they're the reason I moved down here. But they, they've just um, created some up north in York, and that's really important, but it's still hard for a lot of people to get out to those spaces and the other thing is that just you know it just isn't on most people's radar like they won't think i'm going to go out and do today i'll think i'll go out and go for a hike today but they won't think i'll go, go out and look at the stars today and i think that really needs to change and that you know it's quite it would be quite a profound thing for humanity if it did change i think you know especially in the western world where there is so much light pollution i i meet people all the time that have never seen the milky way and they will say, oh, well, I saw a picture of it. But that is just not, it's, you know, come on. That's like saying I saw a picture of a tree after you haven't been in, in a wild space for a week. Say you've been in a room for a week and someone showed you a picture of a tree. What you're talking about when you say, I've seen a picture of Saturn or the Milky Way. Actually, you're still just in a room. You know, you're just in a room. You need to go out there and you need to actually, you know, <laughs> have that connection, have that kind of nature connection. Um, and it's a little bit more difficult than going for a hike because you might go out, you might plan it, and then you go out and it's cloudy, you know. There is that aspect as well, you need, and you need to actually get to a space where the light pollution is low enough. Um, so we, we definitely need more of those spaces, but I wish that they were a bit more integrated rather than just having the dark sky areas. You know, what if your area just on a Thursday, one Thursday a month, just turned off all the lights at a certain time and everyone went outside? 
I mean, maybe that sounds like a really bizarre hippie thing to do. I don't know. I really think it would have like a profound um, impact on humanity if we did that. I really think it would impact the way people think. And it might be that when people do see a planet or when people even just see the ISS going over, the, the excitement or they see a solar eclipse, it's like, all right, it's like that, but it's right there on your doorstep and you should be able to open your door and look up and see it. And that's actually a really um, weird thing to say, right? Most people go, whoa, what? And it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be that crazy an idea. It's true. That's how it used to be. You stepped outside, you looked up, and you saw, you saw the entire map of the night sky. I mean, I could see the, like, the dark spaces, especially in suburbs. You know, the city center, it's a little bit harder, but if you're living in a suburban area, you know, you can agree with your neighbors or with your town that, like you said, you know, Friday or Saturday night or during the middle of the week, you know, because you don't want to do it on the weekend. Where, So that little suburb is dark for that you know, couple hours and people can go out and look up because, yeah, I mean, I used, when I go camping, I, I mean, I, I love to go camping and hiking. I bring a tent with me, but I hardly ever sleep in my tent. I like sleeping underneath mm-hmm. the stars because I just like staring up at the sky while I'm going to bed. Wow, you're braver than me because I've tried that and I, I got too cold. <laughs> Oh yeah, living in Canada, where you. But but I will risk. Oh yeah, okay. You're a lot harder than I am. I will risk being cold for hours and just getting a crick in my neck from looking up at the night sky. I've done that, and and I know people don't get it, and the amount of people I've taken out to do it who then do get it, and that's what I mean. Where it's like it's not the same as just watching a documentary. I mean, watch the documentaries; they're great. You know, I love Carl Sagan's Cosmos. I absolutely live by that. It's fantastic. Please love it. But there's just nothing like going out and looking up and seeing right now that you know this saturn right now this is how many millions of miles it is away and if you've got a telescope if you're lucky and you've got a telescope you can see its rings i mean i went out and saw last year saw jupiter and i'd had seen jupiter before this was the this was the first time i was actually able to like you know obviously you, you know what it's like with, when you're stargazing it's quite difficult actually as you're kind of trying to get a clear view and then it moves out of view because obviously you're rotating you really realize this when you're trying to look for a telescope because you've just got it and then it's gone and then you've just got it and then it and it took me ages but i finally managed to get it so clear that i could see the red spot i was just i just i almost felt like spoiled like why do i get to see this this is incredible and then i was speaking to an astronomer friend who does it for a living an astronomer he's a you know he's an astrophysicist and he said you know i've seen it like 40 times but i'll never get bored of it but i just thought oh my goodness you've seen it 40 times just you know on a different plane and then you think obviously there are people that actually go out and live on the iss and if you follow any of their feeds and i always say to people they really should because it's so incredible you can't get bored of them honestly you just look at all these astronauts who are living on the international space station they all have facebook pages they all have twitter pages and they all post the photos that they take i used to follow chris hadfield he's this amazing photographer and i've got a book of his photography that he did from the iss and just that constant looking down looking down and like you know, here's what here's what the sunrise looks like from up here on Earth. Or here's what, what yeah, we, we often see like the weather maps, don't we? We'll see like, oh, here's what a hurricane looks like. But just look at what the Earth looks like when they're passing over. Just at any moment in time. It's just so incredibly beautiful, isn't it? It's just, and it's in real time. They just took it and they've sent that image down. It's incredible. Absolutely mind-blowingly incredible. What I love is the pictures of the aurora, the auroras from space. Yes, Station. those are. Yeah, and, okay, okay. When you're talking about the, you know, the guy had seen the, the 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 giant red spot forty times. When I first moved up north, someone up there told me he's like, "Oh, you see the auroras once and you get bored of them." But I mean, I used to go out 
as much as I could to take a look at them. I'm like, how can you get bored of that? It's, it's, it's... Well, I think you can, I've heard this about as well. And I think that you can get bored when you're disconnected. So you can, it's the same as like going for a hike and just finding it boring. Right. Yeah. Or you can go for a hike and like really invigorated and it really helps your mental health. And you know, it's really good for you. It's just about having the connection. And I think it's hard to get the connection if you're not exposed to it a lot. Yeah. And I think that's the difference with the spacing is that you've really got to go out and do it. And then you can be very disconnected because you're like, oh, well, I saw these pictures already on TV. And it almost does it a disservice because you think it's just not the same as having the experience and the connection. No. It is more like kind of looking at pictures of trees and feeling like, you, you know, yeah, no. think, thinking that it's the same as being there in a forest. And it's not. It's just not. No, everything's completely different. Listen, I know you've got to go, so I don't want to take too much of your time. Thank you very much for speaking with me. If you want to let know people... If you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you, I'll put all the links in the description. Um, again, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Um, my website is www.zionlights.co.uk and I'm on LinkedIn and I'm active on Twitter. My handle is at Zionpreet, that's Z-I-O-N-E-R-E. Always want to, always happy to talk to people about stargazing. So <laughs> well, feel free to get in touch. Well, again, thank you very much and thank you everyone for listening and I'll be back.